Today, most of the activity in the industry is happening in building small satellites that go into low Earth orbit. And I can think of three companies off the top of my head that are building factories scaled to hundreds of satellites, you know, nearly touching a thousand satellite production. And it's really hard to square that with what I think is the demand out there. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, and welcome to the beginning of the second half of 2023. The Downlink podcast opened the year with a very broad look at commercial space space capital, and the state of the space economy. And that's because in our capitalist system, the economy is the foundation upon which space technology development, innovation, and therefore in-space capability are financed. And it doesn't matter, be it for civil, commercial, or national security missions. So now it's time to take a look back at the first six months to see how the space market and economy have fared and What were the top events that are shaping spending, investment, and business strategies in the next two quarters and beyond? I've got to admit that starting from about a year ago, it seems like every time I produce this space finance and economy overview episode, the macroeconomic metrics like employment or government borrowing rates are weird. Well, guess what? They're still really weird. So in order to demystify the good, the not so good, and the weird of the first six months of 2023, and to see what may be coming in the second half, we have two downlink regulars who were on that New Year's episode, Chris Quilty and George Pullen. Here's our conversation. Hi, Chris. George, thank you both for joining me on this 4th of July week. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Laura. Great to be back. You know, we've gotten together today to talk about the state of the space market, investment, and economy. But first, for our new listeners, let's have you both introduce yourselves and your organizations. And Chris, you know, I always have to have you start. <laughs> uh, thanks, Laura. Uh, so, uh, Chris Quilty, and I am the one of the founders of Quilty Space. We are a about 10-person uh, group that does research and investment banking on the space industry. Uh, so we come at everything from uh, in a finance angle in terms of how we look at the industry. And just by way of background, I spent uh, 20 years as a sell-side analyst at Raymond James writing research on the defense and space industry. And George? Sure, Laura. So for people who don't know me, my name is George Pullen. I'm a space economist. I work for Milky Way Economy. Uh, we're a group of about six folks focusing on the space economy. Uh, we see the space economy as the fifth industrial revolution. We believe that the technologies taking place today in the fourth industrial revolution are going to create a vibrant ecosystem in space. And our estimates are that it'll be worth $4 trillion in the 2040s. And we also do, in addition to our educational work, we also make some investments through our port coast. And just for those who have not been introduced, you know, what is the fifth industrial revolution? You know, could you explain it and why are you so passionate about it? 
Sure. So if you look at the previous industrial revolutions, they form basically an arc that describes the uh, most robust periods of expansion that we've had for economic activity over the last almost uh, 250 years at this point. And each time it has been exponential. And what's interesting is the distance between these industrial revolutions continue to shorten and the number of new technologies and innovations that push us into the next one continues to increase in number. So as we look across what's happened previously, we can predict and we forecast that the industrialization of space and the commercialization of space technologies will be the fifth industrial revolution, which will be the birth of the space economy. And the reason you're so passionate about it, is it just because it's going to be possibly worth $4 trillion in about uh, 17 years? Yeah. I mean, as as a space economist who is a recovering banker, and trader, yes, money does get me excited. So that is a good reason. <laughs> I thought I should just ask. I thought maybe, you know, you were channeling, you know, your Star Trek. All right, then. So let's get to the conversation. And starting again with you, Chris, what do you think is the most consequential development for the space market from the first six months of this year? Uh so actually, I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind to me is what what didn't happen, perhaps. I mean, there was a lot of news stories around a potential merger of SES and Intelsat uh, that end of the day didn't happen. And uh, likewise, I think the thing we were all holding our breath for uh, was the launch, first launch of the Starship, which didn't go quite as planned. I mean, I guess it got things done, but, you know, those were were two things that didn't happen on the flip side, there was a lot that happened during the quarter, um, kind of top of mind, you know, Viasat and Marsat, you know, finally closed after a year and a half. Um, the SDA uh, got off their first launch of a, a set of Tranche Zero satellites, you know, not quite on the two-year schedule, but pretty darn good. And the uh, SDA is a space development agency just for everybody? Correct. Uh, space development agency is building a constellation of, we think about a thousand satellites in low earth orbit. Uh, they began this process a couple of years ago with a goal of ordering and launching satellites every two years. And so this was their very first launch of a batch of satellites. So that's kind of exciting, uh, seeing the DOD operating in a different way than they have previously. So I, I guess the bottom line is, you know, OneWeb finished up their constellation. Uh, you had uh, the Europeans finalize their Iris Squared program. It was just a lot of uh, block and tackle stuff that got done during the quarter. I wouldn't say there was a single event that stood out in my mind. And George, what do you think is the most consequential development for the space economy, as the market and the economy are not at all the same, and if you want to be kind to some of our engineering, defense, and science-minded listeners, it'd be great to highlight the difference. Sure. So just to speak clearly for folks about the difference, the space industry and therefore the response to current market drivers and the space economy are different. To separate them, keep in mind that an industry is a group of firms that are similar and related to one another based on their key word here, uh, primary business activity. So the S&P 500, for example, um, a benchmark that many people are familiar with, potentially from their own 401ks or IRAs, the S&P 500 breaks themselves down into 11 industry groups. Um, Another benchmark people are probably familiar with is the MSCI, 
the MSCI uses the uh, GICS, which no acronym zone, I know, Laura, um, which is the Global Industry Classification Standard. Uh, and they break themselves down to 150 different industries. So what's important here is that those breakdowns, again, we're talking about specific firms. Um, and the space industry is these specific firms that are similar and related based on their primary business being space. Now, when you go one step out to the space economy, you're talking about, well, what is an economy? The economy is the relationship between all related production, distribution, consumption, and trade of goods, products, and services. So when you look to pick up the economy, it's bigger than just the industry because it's the entire system of organizations and how that systems of organizations are allocating scarce resources to multiple agents. And of course, economists love studying agents and how they make the decisions to allocate scarce resources. Um, so that's why there's a difference between the space industry and the space economy. So I'm glad you, you asked that clarifying question. Now, for the second part, which is what am I following and what do I believe was the most important thing that happened in the first half of 2023 for the space economy? I think uh, full stop one answer is the signing of the Artemis Accords by India. Um, yes, they were the 27th signatory. So, you know, they're not the, the first, they weren't the 10th, um, they're the 27th. But it's important to keep in mind here that their signature was not a foregone conclusion. Um, pause. Sorry. It's the song of the city. I can't control that one. They're finally coming to get you, George. <laughs> I've been on the run a long time. It's almost a relief that they've come. Um, okay, I know I know where I was. So you want to count me back in? Because you have to cut here. Oh, right? no, I'm keeping that. Oh, That's fine. That? Oh, hell yes. All right, good enough then. Oh, yeah. Um, well, then in that case, uh, I think it's important that when we talk about India signing the Artemis Accords, that we realized that their signature was not a foregone conclusion. It might have been publicized as a foregone conclusion here. Um, I do a bit of writing and I do some reading in India. Uh, it was not a foregone conclusion. <laughs> um, oh, no, they, I don't. No. <laughs> I'm not even sure that even here it was a foregone conclusion. Honestly, uh, the whole India signing the Artemis Accords really just popped up. And when it popped up in the media, it it originated from Indian media, not mm -hmm. from Western mm -hmm. media. And I have to say that a lot of my colleagues covering space really held back for quite a while. And even when I spoke with an ambassador who has has done a lot of work in India, and, and I asked him and, and he said to me, you know, it's never done until seven hours after the ink has dried. Mm -hmm. So... And, no. and we're past seven hours, so we, we can talk about it. We're past seven hours, so we no, can yeah. now talk about it. But, you know, and for all those who are, are listening to this, I do highly recommend that you listened to that episode on India and signing the Artemis Accords and Modi State visit, because what George is saying is really true. It's it's huge. And it's, it's also a huge testament to not only our ability to read the messaging, but also to understand the work that, you know, Ambassador uh, Sandhu put in, right, from the Indian delegation. Um, probably the hard work that we can assume that the NASA administrator, right, that Bill Nelson was putting in and the White House folks, you know, you're talking about like Sean Wilson, you know, that's National Space Council and Matthew Daniels, right, White House Office of S&T. You know, you know, they were hustling to get this signature because we want India to be part of our future designs for the space economy as an ally who also wants to tap into this 
huge $4 trillion plus resource under the norms that we agree to as democracies um, and not partnering with potentially, you know, someone else's bases or space stations. I'm talking about China and Russia, um, but instead partnering with us. So my next question is kind of a catch-all and it's for the both of you, but which subsector in the space market or space economy is showing signs of taking off, if any, and which one is oversubscribed or getting whacked? And George, why don't you take this on first? Sure. So for this one, I'm going to say that what I see is that last year, you know, SpaceWorks, huge fan of SpaceWorks, uh, all the good work that Gabe Mounts and his team is doing, um, they put out 124 Orbital Prime Awards. Okay. Now, some of those are multiple winners, but you're still talking about 124 small and medium-sized businesses getting quarter of a million dollar awards each. Now, a quarter million dollars, let's be honest, that's not much for space tech. Space is expensive. But these were all drivers around the ISAM, or depending on what initials you prefer, ISAM or OSAM. The difference is in and space. ISAM or ISAM. Okay, thank you. Sorry, <laughs> I was going to come after you. And oh, by the way, those 124 orbital prime contracts were actually just phase ones. That's right. That's right. And so, so that was for I for in space or O for on orbit, but the SAM part's the important part. That's servicing, assembly, manufacturing. Um, and really this was a focus on debris removal and the capabilities that debris removal requires. So these are all done under um, uh, this blanket, you know, orbital prime. There's 124 of them. Like you mentioned, they're all phase ones. Now in April, right, so a little bit earlier this year, we saw the release of the directive phase twos. Directive phase twos were bigger. Those were 1.7 million each, went to 30 companies. There's a bit of an overlap in the 30 company names between those 30 and the 124. But again, you're talking about direct focus on a sector and that direct focus on the sector is helping it expand. And then literally this weekend last, we're starting to see phase twos come out. Now, not direct to phase two, I want to be careful my language here, but phase two's come out, which is the extension of a contract for some of those 124. Um, now, what I'm hearing is there's probably only going to be about 20 of those, which is a reduction from what people were thinking, but that's another uh, you know, one and a half million or so award for these companies. That is a huge amount of activity. And so as a subsector, I think ISAM, OSAM is getting some laser focus and laser funding from um, Uncle Sam right now. I think that's important. And Chris, what do you see? You know, is there anything that you think is oversubscribed and getting whacked? Yeah. So I'll, you know, in contrast to uh, George's economist lens, I'll give you the sort of stock analyst lens, which is when you look at sectors of the, the space industry, uh, Earth observation re- really continues to come in pretty hot. We actually did a total the other day looking at all the different constellations, either you know on orbit or proposed, and there are more Earth observation or EO constellations than there are on the communication side, something like 120. Um, the investment activity has been you know pretty uh, high uh, and continuing to to move into different areas. And just to give you a sense, uh, the last Transporter 8 mission, I think there were three hyperspectral satellites on that, on that launch. So what we're seeing is in that sector, you know, whereas it was always optical, 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 you're now seeing SAR and hyperspectral and thermal and infrared and uh, weather uh, satellites all getting launched to orbit. 
Uh, on the flip side of that, you know, it's an easy rub to, to mention launch, uh, where, you know, with north of 100 startups in that segment and probably five to seven survivors in the long term, uh, we're going to probably see an accelerated fallout in the near term. Uh, I'd also mention that satellite manufacturing, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of investment, and a lot of scaling up. And, and just to quantify here, I mean, historically, when I said the term satellite manufacturing, you thought of one of the big six companies that built these geo satellites. Uh, today, most of the activity in the industry is happening in building small satellites that go into low Earth orbit. And I can think of three companies off the top of my head that are building factories scaled to hundreds of satellites, you know, nearly touching a thousand satellite production. And it's really hard to square that with what I think is the demand out there. Uh, you know, sure, SpaceX launched over 1,200 satellites last year, but those are all SpaceX produced. When you move outside of SpaceX, uh, it looks like maybe some of the supply here has gotten in front of the demand. Can I add something there, Laura? Because, and, and Chris, if this is from one of your reports, uh, please jump in because it actually might be as I'm thinking about it. But it is important that people realize that although there are a higher number of satellites going up, we have not dramatically increased the mass that we are sending up. We're just sending up a lot of smaller satellites and a lot less of these larger, more sophisticated satellites. Um, like he was, like Chris was mentioning, you know, the six big manufacturers of the geo satellites. Um, instead, it's production of all these smaller satellites. So that's important because sometimes people get confused that we're, you know, oh look at us, look at our activity. We're sending so much more up. Well, we are sending more up, but we're not really sending that much more mass up. Yeah, and, and I other- think it'd be wise also to just put in there, I mean, there's a reason why SpaceX has put up so many of these small satellites um, and and why other companies may see a market in producing this, but I, you know, I'm starting to, you know, get out of my lane. But when we're talking about, you know, or talking about physics here, you know, there is attrition, there is, is, is atmospheric drag, things do come back and burn up in the atmosphere. And uh, some folks I would imagine would want to replace that capability. Chris, you were about um, to say something. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, look, I mean, the LEO model is is just different than GEO, right? Uh, the traditional world was built around GEO satellites. You spend three years, a couple years designing it, uh, determining the markets, three years building it, and then it's 15, 17 years on orbit. Uh, the LEO constellations that we're seeing going up, most notably SpaceX, seem to be targeting, you know, maybe a three or four year replacement cycle on the satellites. And that's due to, you know, both the migrating to, migrating to the new Gen 2 satellites that are going to be at a very low altitude. And really, it just, uh, it, it forces you into a model where you have to replace the hardware uh, nonstop. So we were all impressed that you know, last year, SpaceX launched 61 times uh, in 2022. They're going to have to launch at that rate or more forever, like every year. So <laughs> it shouldn't be a high water mark. It sh- it's got to become the expectation if these constellations are to be supported in the long term. And now moving on to one of my favorite questions. 
where's that recession? We've still got a very pronounced inverted yield curve, which is great for money market accounts or short-term bond instruments. But seriously, guys, doesn't that just give investors the jitters? I mean, why wouldn't you just park your capital in short-term and comparatively safe bonds until the yield curve comes back to normal? George, you're the economist. What does this all mean? Because Chris and I are just going to say this is just weird. Yeah. So so yield curves are not supposed to be inverted like this for this long um, without leading to a recession. There is There's really good work out there on how this indicates a coming recession you know, seven times out of 10. So it's, it's a very strong indicator, but you know, the, the opposite is what we have to deal with, right? So the chances of recession earlier this year were much higher. Some forecasts had it as high as, you know, a third or 50% chances. Well, let's talk about what the definition of recession is, which I teach to my students, which is two consecutive quarters of uh, GDP reductions. So two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, which means a slide, a reduction in activity for the overall market, for the overall, um, think of the uh, overall economic generational capabilities in the United States as a measure of what GDP is for just household purposes and conversations. So to get that now, we're talking about needing that in Q3 and Q4 to keep this prediction on track. Um, it doesn't look like we're going to see that. And so now Folks, you know, like myself, um, <clears throat> sitting there with economic forecasts, we have to say, okay, does that mean the conditions have changed? Well, the yield curves are still inverted. So those conditions have not changed. Um, does this mean this time it's different? Um, I will never bet on this time it's different. That's a terrible model um, and it's not substantiated by data. And so the third option is, does that prediction just push itself further out? I see most analysts pushing their predictions further out. And so they're saying the 2023 recession might end up being a 2024 recession. And you're already seeing people start to say that on the uh, on the Sunday talk shows and what have you. And so I think that's where most thoughts are. Um, for me and my experience, what I'm seeing is that uh, investment capital is drying up. And that's another indicator. That's not one that you're going to see, you know, broad measurements done around. But as you know, Milk Way Economy, we have um, a few dozen port codes. And, uh, you know, we full disclosure, we write small checks. No one's going to space with our checks. Space is expensive. It takes seven and eight digit checks. We write five and six digit checks. But what we see is those seven, eight digit checks are much harder to find right now. And I think that's my indication that the market is still very nervous and that people are still eyeing the potential of a recession. Chris, you know, you've seen this, you've read it from 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 others that it's been reported that new space investment is down by more than half for the first quarter of this year compared to Q1 in 2022. What are space investors doing with their capital if they're not investing in space? Well, I mean, look, let's remember the the actual vintage of VC space investors only goes back to 2015. You know, prior to that, if you look at the decade prior to 2015, there were on average less than 10 VC investments in space companies worldwide. And I think the average was $140 million, right? And we're now seeing billions of dollars invested every year and dozens and dozens of companies getting funded. So I, I think the short answer is, 
you know, there's not a lot of history here. There's not a lot of successful exits for the venture investors that that have come into this sector, uh, which they would rightly determine a, a frontier investment sector. Uh, and it makes it a little bit more susceptible when when investors get nervous and they claw back capital and try to pick who the winners are. Uh, you know, space companies generally are on the outside looking in. So there's a lot of concern about that. I mean, the downturn in venture funding and capital raising is across the board, you know, and it's different, of course, than what's happening in the public markets, which are are screaming ahead. And so there's a little bit of dissonance, I would argue, going on in the market here, you know, beyond uh, just the the inverted yield curve, which we all know is a, is a harbinger of recession. So um, I'm not the economist. Uh, I would say there's uh, strange swells of investment happening in the industry uh, in terms of private equity and public markets and venture capital and a lot of untested territory that we're going to probably see in the next 12 to 24 months as companies try to raise larger and larger series of capital uh, to get constellations on orbit and rockets flying. I think something that Chris hit on there that's important for people to understand is that was a fantastic history lesson around space venture capital. And the reason that history lesson was so important that Chris just gave us is when we talk about VCs in general, oftentimes we're talking about money that continues to roll into new funds. So that was Chris's comment about vintages. It continues to roll forward into new funds. If you see the vast majority of space VC activity, of which there's only really about nine who completely focus on space, if you see that continuation forward, they haven't had the big wins from five years ago, 10 years ago that have rolled into these new funds, right? I mean, I think a good data point and, you know, uh, you know, Mark James and Kit over at, um, you know, uh, Seraphim, you know, we're not BFFs or anything, but I will say that they recently had a, a post where they were talking about how they've, they've reached their first 100, right? Space companies that they have invested in and supported in the ecosystem. They're the only ones even close to that number. And so there is a, a huge gap, I think, for people to realize is there when we're talking about VCs entering into the space industry in that they don't come with track records of previous funds. They don't come with track records of previous wins and exits to show to limited partners, the people who actually have the money, what they have is more than likely a related expertise. So perhaps deep tech or something um, parallel to space that they can lean on for their performance to show what they want to do with these funds. And because of that, they likely have investment policy statements that are more broad in most cases than just space. So if people are seeing a pullback in space and I have an investment policy statement that lets me invest in something else, tip of the spear technology-wise, I will pivot to putting it over there. And I won't necessarily put it into a space company right now if I see weakness in the sector. Now, as as it's been reported that investment is down, you know, there have been also a lot of reports on consolidation and mergers and acquisitions. And Chris, this is totally in your lane. So what's the latest in that? And what should we expect for perhaps the rest of the year? And yes, I am holding your feet to the fire and you do have yeah. to make a prediction. Go for it. Um, yeah. So... Look, I mean, I already touched on some of the high-profile M and A's, the the Inmarsat, Viasat, 
uh, and Intelsat SES. And, you know, I think there'll be some more of those uh, that will happen. But I um, actually was just totaling up um, some of the transactions from the month of June because we, we publish monthly data on M&A activity and capital raising and whatnot. And I haven't seen the final numbers, um, but it sure looks like things kind of picked up a bit in June. And so there's a number of things going on. I mean, private equity has become much more active in the sector, um, you know, whether it was the sort of roll-up strategy that AE Industrial Partners did with Red Wire or individual transactions uh, where, um, you know, Advent stepped in and, and bought MaxR. So uh, that continues to be an engine for the, the PE side. And, you know, look, the, the times are opportunistic for a lot of these PE firms, but also, you know, the fuel for their engine is uh, low cost capital and capital costs are going up. So uh, there's some headwinds that also will present itself to the industry. But my guess is just based on what I've seen over the last two months, I, I, I would predict that probably the back half of the year, we'll see a higher level of transactions. Uh, certainly on the M&A side, I can't really predict on the fundraising side, I mean, things are tough and I would hope the second half of the year improves over the first half, but, you know, it'll certainly be down on a year over year basis. And just in that same vein, and we're talking about mergers and acquisitions and, you know, PE, which you guys are going to have to explain the acronym to everybody, but also in the news within the past month is that Orbit Fab and Ursa Major, and, and I've had Ursa Major on the podcast. It's one of my, you know, favorite companies that does really cool stuff um, out of Ohio, even though they're headquartered in Colorado. But nevertheless, Ursa Major laid off like 27% of its staff. You know, what, what is this about? I mean, both of these companies have laid off staff and they're not the only ones. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. And, you know, both of the companies that you mentioned, I think, have been on a pretty good upward trajectory in terms of employee count and number of customers and, and growth. But look at the, we already talked about it, the capital funding environment is getting tight, especially for growth stage capital, which is where these companies are at. And so I think what management is doing is the smart thing is sort of buckling down the hatches, preserving cash, stretching it out, you know, so that the the timing of their next round, you know, hopefully hits a more um, favorable timing for valuation purposes. And uh, that's just a smart thing to do. I, I don't think it's necessarily an indication that the that the world is ending for either of those companies. That said, um, you know, every time I see interesting data points, I, I put them down in a spreadsheet just because you never know, like how many data points you're going to end up getting. And if you get enough, it's like, oh, that's a trend line and let's talk about it. And so we did start a spreadsheet on space and industry bankruptcies. So, you know, you could argue Virgin, was, so the first one. Virgin was the first one of this year and you know, we'll, we'll see what happens over the rest of the year. And I'll share my spreadsheet. Now, my next question is, is, is kind of in the same vein as that, because it's like, and we've been hearing this from a lot of different leaders from a lot of different places, but uh, I can think most specifically of the Space Force CSO, Chance Salzman. And his message was basically evolve or suffer, because if you don't, you're going to be stuck in the frozen middle. And I came up with this thought, 
when I was thinking about Boeing and by extension, Virgin Orbit, which you just mentioned, which has gone through bankruptcy and has had um, almost all of its assets sold off. I think there's just a, a tiny wee bit left, but I'm not sure. And there's this rumor that's going around that Boeing is looking to offload its space division and Boeing actually hasn't denied it at all. Are bigger companies in line to to either sell off their space divisions or 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 merge with others? I mean, or is this just still at the rumor stage? So I'll jump in a little bit there. Uh, so bigger companies are are less mine than Chris's, but I will say that I have been tracking uh, the evolving situation with Boeing. Um, as you mentioned, you know they haven't denied it. There's been reports about it. Um, some of it is around uh, the perceived weaknesses in Starliner relative to other space plane designs. There's obviously a, a race to see who can have the first effective and economically viable space plane. That being said, it's it's largely believed that Boeing is behind there. And so I would be surprised if they shuttered all of their space activities. Uh, space is still a very profitable place to be, particularly if you're Boeing um, and a prime. But I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, Starliner uh, spin out or wind down or, or something like that. It does seem like that is the indication. In terms of Virgin, I would add there, and <laughs> your, your listeners probably already know, um, but you know, you and I did the Space Industrial Base panel together in New Mexico several weeks back. Um, at the time, I mentioned it, but I was in a consortium that was bidding on VO and bankruptcy. Um, I'll be careful not to get myself in trouble because of the quiet period and all that good stuff. But just speaking generally about the VO capabilities, I am still in shock. I I am still in shock that we looked at Virgin Orbit and we looked at the on-demand responsive launch from hundreds of runways around the world that can service a 747. And we said, you know what? We, we being the royal we of the USA, we're willing to let that go. Right? We don't want that to help us replenish sats, and we don't want that to be able to help our allies have a capability to have launch from their airports because they're not going to all go out and build massive multi-billion dollar spaceports. We, but you know what we decided? We decided we don't want that. That was a shock to me, and I'm, I'm still sort of reeling about it. I'm interested that there's silence from Chris because at the beginning of the year, and actually at, at, at not just at the beginning of the year, but, but episodes, um, around the same time that Virgin Orbit announced that it was filing for bankruptcy. I remember, Chris, you said, well, you know, how many people really want on-demand launch at that kind of pace, at that price point? Yeah. I mean, the end of the day, it, it's the most expensive way to launch and it's capacity limited in what it can put onto orbit, which defines a relatively limited segment of the launch market they can serve. And look at the overall economic costs of the business, uh, albeit if you strip it down to normal OPEX, not what they were running it at. Um, and can you make money? And who is your customer? And I think you already answered. I mean, the government is the only customer that will pay that premium. And so unless there was established political support to keep this company alive, uh, a la $9.2 billion loan to Ford, I, I know nothing about that, you know, the the answer is it, it didn't happen quickly enough. I mean, it's not like Virgin Orbit's bankruptcy caught everybody by surprise. I mean, it was a slow moving freight train and the government had plenty of time to muster funding and political support and programs to to step in and, and catch them. 
And the fact that they chose not to means that maybe they think there's other ways to get to orbit responsively, like a starship. Who knows? Now, also in an earlier episode this spring, I interviewed Raytheon's head of space, and that's David Broadbent. And he confirmed Raytheon is restructuring. And he also revealed that the strategy for its space business was evolving by letting go, perhaps just temporarily, the goal to become a full stack prime. Now, Raytheon is a big company with lots of heritage, and it can more readily afford a misstep and a strategy correction. But I wonder about small and medium-sized businesses where a lot of dedicated and hungry creativity resides. I hear a lot, and this has been I'd really say within the past maybe four months, I've heard a lot of these small and medium-sized business players using the phrase full stack, quote unquote, to pitch to investors and to lure customers and to interact with journalists like myself. But is that approach actually practical under current day circumstances? So the, the delivery of a full stack in this context, I'm going to interpret to be the delivery of a full solution. And this is cradle to grave. Yep. Cradle to grave. Yeah. And when I think about it, you know, this is the model that Raytheon and other primes have used for years, which is you give me a call when you have a mission and I can deliver everything you need for that mission. Now, this is something that smaller companies cannot compete with individually. They cannot service full missions. And so by the very nature of the design of that thought process within the Pentagon, they are making it such that they will only get solutions from people who can do full stack pitches. Um, That doesn't mean it's the best solution. That means it's the best solution that's been squished together into one full stack. I think that there's been some uh, good movement away from that methodology, but it is still our legacy. And it's still how we go through procurement. Um, I think that when you look at the workforce, which was, I think, baked into that question a little bit, I know there's a lot of tightness, even with even with some of these layoffs that have been announced. Um, I know <laughs> I know four or five different firms right now that are hiring for various space roles and they're having a hard time getting folks. So while while the the restructuring talk is is probably gonna be ongoing. I think when a prime talks about restructuring, it's, it's like when my son or daughter talks about their new favorite band, it's like, okay, that's, of course you're restructuring. You're always restructuring. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, I mean, David Broadbent did, I, again, as I say, reveal that they were kind of stepping back from being that full stack, right. In, in terms of their space division and, and thinking of things in more of a mercantilist type of idea that, okay, you know, you're a prime and you need such and such part of your final product, which I thought was a really interesting thing for him to say. And then when you go to these conferences, I'm hearing from small and medium-sized players that they're going to offer a full stack as opposed to a mercantilist type of uh, offering. Right. It just seems impractical. Yeah. 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 So and maybe that's just me and I'm not, you know, a business person. Yes, I am a journalist, but I, you know, can kind of do, you know, some basic addition and subtraction. And I, I'm just not getting why there's all this talk about full stack when it's even hard for something like Raytheon to do. 
Yeah, I would just weigh in. And I mean, there's a difference between vertical integration, which SpaceX has shown, you know, to be effective and, and profitable and, uh, you know, very competitive versus, you know, when I when I hear the term system stack, it's almost reminiscent. George, you'll, you'll have to correct me if I get the term wrong. Back in the early 2000s, the Defense Department, having failed on all their previous programs over the prior 10 or 20 years, decided they were going to do something new. And they moved to this strategy called Lead Systems Integrator, LSI. Is that it, George? He's shaking his head. Um, and the idea was, well, we're just going to award a contract to a, a prime contractor, like you know, one of the big five or big six prime contractors, and they're smart guys and their expertise is they know how to manage things. So they made total screw-ups like giving Lockheed, which had never owned a shipyard, had never built a ship in its life, the, the LSI for the Coast Guard and its whole renovation of the Coast Guard fleet. And it was a disaster. You know, in the tactical radio business, they gave these big ass contracts to uh, Raytheon and Lockheed, which were both fired after years and billions of dollars, and uh, Northrop, which eventually got squashed by by L3 Harris, that just did it commercially. So the idea that you can give somebody the ability to integrate all pieces of the pie and do it successfully, uh, I think the history there is not good. What I think is you know, a little bit more exciting about what's happening in the defense sector is just the amount of commercially, well, back to venture, right? Uh, there's, if overall investing, uh, venture investing in space is down 30 to 40%, I think defense investments in defense tech are probably up 30 to 40%. And uh, you've got companies like Andrel founded by Palmer Lucky, where they do like a billion and a half round. I mean, it was a huge round last year. And so you're seeing companies coming into the defense and space sector with very differentiated models. And I'm a lot more excited about that than, than I am of the concept of full stack, whatever that is. You, you brought up uh, the interesting, uh, the acronym, you know, the, LS, uh, the LSI, like the lead system integrator. But what was always funny about that is very built in the other great acronym for that, which is you were an LSI if you were pursuing a system of systems or an SOS. And it was always the ongoing joke that the real SOS was coming out of the prime that had to do all this. Yeah. Um, and it remains true now as it did then. So we're running out of time, but before I let you go, we have to do the next most painful thing, which is what do we in the audience and also including me, the host, what do we need to know for the second half of the year? What should we be watching out for? George, you go first. So I'm going to talk about money because we've already established that I like that and I'm an economist. And I think what we've seen with the regulatory avoidance exodus of Sequoia and um, some of the comments out of other major venture capital players like A16Z and others is that Sequoia has said that they're going to take their pot of money and they're going to divide it into three chunks. And those chunks will be a, a US chunk, it'll be a China chunk, and it'll be an India chunk. And the idea is that this way they continue to make all the investments they've been making in technologies around space and AI that are against U.S. interests. But they'll just do it at this other entity that's you know, arm's length away. Um, 
it's important to follow the second half of the year if we see other VCs doing this. Don't believe what people tell you, believe what they do. And if we see more VCs doing this, that means that there's a perceived growing risk among the financial community that there will be repercussions if those investments are happening on both sides of uh, the proverbial ocean and with friendly and non-friendly nations. And you just got to follow the money. And if, if we can see more and more of that in the second half of the year, I think that's a, a potentially very troubling sign. And Chris? Um, so I forgot to mention it previously when we were we were talking about the Boeing defense business, but you know, the other news was that Ball is potentially putting their aerospace business up for sale, which would, you know, lend some credence to the fact that, you know, the smart people think this is a good time uh, to sell space-related businesses. So, um, you know, kind of the outcome of those two transactions in the back half of the year uh, will be kind of interesting, a little bit more defense-leaning uh, than, than general space. You know, I would say for discrete events, uh, the Vulcan, uh, first launch of ULA's Vulcan rocket, which is both their maiden launch, but you've also got uh, Astrobotic going up with their first lunar lander on that one. Fingers crossed. And um, just while you're on ULA, I mean, there's also you know yeah. rumor about that ULA is also looking for a buyer. Yeah, which adds a complication to that Boeing, you know, space spinoff because they're a fifty percent owner in ULA. So is this a, a bundled transaction? Do they happen in series? Is one dependent on the other? A lot of moving pieces there. But uh, you know, again, uh, Vulcan delayed, but uh, should happen the back half of the year. Uh, I think you know the other major launch that everybody's looking for is the next uh, starship launch and to see whether they can make some incremental improvements over that maiden launch that didn't turn out quite as planned and what about starliner oh um that's just another launch that would be kind of nice to see <laughs> yeah yeah by the it, way everybody starliner's boeing's nasa crew development that SpaceX has already done, you know, crude things to take NASA's astronauts and, and, you know, Russian cosmonauts are, I think are going to be going up soon um, to the International Space Station. It's kind of important for the development of commercial space stations because you're going to need, you know, safe transportation from Earth to low Earth orbit. Anyway, continue. I'm so sorry. Yeah, to well, it, it could be that, uh, you know, Sierra Space you know, with their Dream Chaser actually gets launched before the Starliner, albeit it's not the the crew version that they they uh, you know lost out to Boeing, but uh, they did just make an announcement recently that they they're planning to launch here pretty soon. You know, and beyond that, like I said, uh, Starship. I think the most recent I've heard is uh, August sort of time frame if the they don't get environmental stand down, and uh, you know that. <laughs> undoubtedly, if successful, would be the biggest event for the second half of the year. Yeah. And I would I would pile on with Chris there. You know, I continue to watch the airspace very closely in the space transportation, space plane race, as I've been calling it. And I do believe there is a pretty good chance that uh, <laughs> that they actually do fly first. I think Chris is right there. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Thanks Laura. Laura. 
That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.